invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. John 3, starting in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice, and therefore this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning and we acknowledge our need before you. Lord, as we have read, we cannot receive even one thing unless it comes from you. So Lord, we pray that you would be doing a mighty work. Help me to speak clearly, to communicate properly, and help all the people here to receive your word uh, as you would have them receive it. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be working. We acknowledge that uh, it is only the spirit who gives us the wisdom to understand your word properly. And so we pray that you would uh, grant that without measure, that you would grant it lavishly, that we would be able to understand as a people your word for us. And Lord, as we go from here, may that word produce fruit in us. May it bear bear fruit that we would be doing good works for your name. We thank you that you do all these things in us. We pray that you be working here now this morning. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so we continue our series today in John, the Gospel of John, making our way through this wonderful book. And I hope you have been blessed by it so far, uh, challenged, rebuked if necessary, and corrected. Uh, it's been great for me. I've really enjoyed listening to the many sermons. It's actually my favorite gospel account uh, because of all the deep theology that's in it, uh, but yet it's also really simple, really easy to read. 
John's actually the easiest book in a literary sense. Uh, I took one year of Greek, and you basically spend all of your time in John because he's the easiest guy to read. He's the everyday man. He uses the simple words. Uh, whereas Luke is kind of the doctor type. He uses the technical terms. You, you don't get there for many years <laughs> when you're trying to learn Greek. Uh, so John is a great book to be studying. It's very easy to read, and yet he has some of the deepest concepts that just blow your mind, uh, and you can spend ages, uh, and men have spent ages studying the book. So I invite you to uh, Stay in your Bible, stay in John, John 3, and we'll dive in and try and discover some of these truths that are within it. John 3.22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Now, before we get into the narrative here, I want to give a little principle on reading and interpreting the Bible. As I first uh, read this text when I started studying, the first thing that popped out at me here was, wow. What would it be like to be baptized by Jesus? Wouldn't that be amazing? Baptized by the Master, the Savior himself. And then that thought hadn't quite finished yet, and then another one popped in and was like, I don't think Jesus baptized anyone. Well, then I was on a quest to find out what's the answer. Am I right? Did Jesus baptize someone or didn't he? Now, sometimes that's how sermon writing goes. You read something, and then you have a thought, and then you spend the next maybe few hours uh, going down this rabbit hole that maybe has nothing to do with your sermon, and it really <laughs> just goes off into somewhere that you didn't want to go. But thankfully, this, this rabbit hole was only about a minute. Uh, in John 4, if you just look further down your page in your Bible, uh, you'll read, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. There we go. Jesus did not baptize anyone. Now, I brought this up because I think it often happens when we read a verse and something sticks out that hasn't stuck out before, and now we're thinking about that thing, like, in my case, Jesus baptizing. And the danger is sometimes we're wrong. Right? We read things wrong. We understand things wrong at first glance. Perhaps the verse that we read was not seeking to address whatever problem we're thinking about, uh, and so we end up making it say something in our head that verse didn't actually say. Or sometimes we just misunderstand a verse because of the differences uh, in time and language and custom that exists between uh, the people uh, that we read about in the Bible and modern Canadians. Now, one way to counteract uh, our small errors, here I'm getting to the principle, uh, is to test those thoughts that come from our reading. Testing against the immediate context of a passage usually clears up or explains uh, misinterpretation. Now, in simple terms, that just means keep reading, right? Read the next chapter, or sometimes you have to go back and reread something that you already read to make sense of what's happening here uh, in the chapter that you're trying to uh, study or, or uh, read. <clears throat> now, if that doesn't help, uh, sometimes you need to go a bit further. You need to do a little bit more study. And so my encouragement to you is that if you come across a verse uh, in your readings, in your study, and it seems to contradict something uh, that you already know to be true in other parts of Scripture, uh, or it tells you something very different than what you were expecting, here's what you do. Oh, sorry, here's what you don't do. <laughs> you don't panic, first of all. Uh, second, you don't assume that the Bible is contradictory, right? Oh, it just says this here, and, 
in other, plus, in other spots it says the opposite, and that's fine. No, the Bible does not contradict itself. And also, don't immediately change your theology on the topic. Rather, seek for the answer. Try and figure out what's happening here. How do we reconcile these things? And if you're unable to find an answer after some study and after some digging, use the church resources, namely your pastors, uh, because they'll either know the answer or they'll be able to find, uh, help you find the answer. Now let's get into the story here. <clears throat> so Jesus and his, bap- uh, his disciples went into the Judean countryside. He remained there. He was baptizing. And John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. So last week, uh, the week before, we left Nicodemus and we traveled into the country and now Jesus and his disciples are baptizing people. And John, also he's nearby uh, in a slightly different area, but he's also baptizing. And the text points out that the water was plentiful there. So it was a good place to be baptizing. So a quick word on baptism here. Uh, The apostles in the early church normally practiced baptism by immersion, usually three times, uh, once for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, The word baptizo literally means immerse or dip. Uh, That's what baptism means. Uh, There's also a few baptism tanks that have been found in ancient churches, uh, and they're obviously for immersion. Uh, There's also some ancient sources that specify that living or moving water was preferable. So uh, a river or or a lake, somewhere where the water was uh, natural. However, in some cases there, where there was little water available uh, or no tank available or where the person was sick or lame, they could not go to a tank, uh, they would still baptize and then they would pour three times over the head in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so going back to John, now there's lots of baptizing going on, right? Jesus and his disciples, John and his disciples. And remember, Jesus has already been baptized. Uh, People have been listening to the teachings of John the Baptist and Jesus, and God spoke from heaven during Jesus' baptism. Uh, Jesus has been doing signs and miracles, so he has a following of people already. There's, There's groups following him. But we're following the story from John's perspective, and now there's this discussion that breaks out between John's disciples and uh, this unnamed Jew. And they end up coming to talk to John in verse 26. And in essence, they say, John, you know that guy that you bore witness to a while back? Well, now he's baptizing people and everyone's going to him. Now, we're not told if that uh, unnamed Jew pointed this out to John's disciple as a form of ridicule, making fun of him that maybe their crowd's getting smaller. Or maybe it's just a statement of fact. But either way, they, they seem unhappy that Jesus is gaining this large crowd uh, and John's crowd is, is either not gaining or maybe they're losing some people. Now, John the Baptist is not phased at all by this. His response is quite fantastic. Uh, verse 27, he says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Now, what does that remind you of? Who does John sound like? Think back earlier in this chapter. In John 3, verse 3, uh, Jesus answered Nicodemus, and he said, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. John the Baptist says, You cannot receive anything 
unless it's given you from heaven or from above. That's quite the truth for us to think about. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. Now, if we acknowledge that truth a little more in our lives, I think it would solve uh, a lot of problems, but specifically, I think, attitude problems. And when we have attitude problems, it's usually because we're not happy with our situation or we're not happy with something that someone else did to us. We're grumbling. For example, flat tire, lost a job, took a pay cut, got sick, in my case, uh, grumpy kids, angry spouse, canceled appointment, etc. You get the point. Now, if we took the time in those moments to think about the great gifts that God gave us, it might help us to thank God for the gifts in our lives instead of blowing up in anger. Now, I'll give you an example from my own life quite recently, actually. Um, Many of you know I was sick for a while, had a fever. Uh, One morning, about eight days into my fever, this is about three weeks ago now, I was not feeling good, uh, sitting at the breakfast table trying to eat some oatmeal. Uh, I think Theodore ate more than I did that day, which is saying something. (laughs) And I remember feeling very down about my situation, and it felt like it was quite a long time since I was able to do really anything other than sit around. Now, I wasn't angry about it, but I wasn't in a good headspace. Uh, I was feeling sorry for myself. And I saw our napkin holder that we have on our table, uh, which has some verses from John 15 written on there, and I read them. And it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, I guess I understood that verse in a more literal sense that day because I really felt like I can do nothing. That, that really hit home. In my emotional and sick state, uh, I just started crying. I'm not sure why. Um, it was a bit of a wreck, but I felt the truth of that statement. Apart from Christ, I can do nothing. Like really nothing. That's exactly what I had been doing. Unless it is given from God above, A person cannot do or receive anything. And when you're sick and all you do is stare at the wall and shiver, fever, then it really hits home that we are frail. We are dust, a mist, a vapor. And we are at the Father's will, able or not able to do anything at any moment. Now God granted me some relief emotionally, from my sadness about my inability to do anything. And I began thanking him for the many things that I still had. Plus the prospect that I was probably going to get better. Praise the Lord. Now it seems that that has happened. (laughs) And now, uh, I think the real challenge uh, is to continue to be thankful. Uh, In one way, it's easy to be thankful when God has been reminding you of your weakness Right, you're in the middle of that. You've slowed down. You've had time to think about it and process everything. So, yeah, I need to be thankful. And now the challenge is, now I get better. Now everything's good. Everything's working out. And now we get the temptation to start to think that, oh, it's just better because I'm really great. <laughs> I'm really tough, right? 
And so, in those days uh, when you can get up out of bed and get ready for the day and eat breakfast and you haven't thought about all the processes that take place in your body, you haven't thought about your warm bed and heated house that you live in, you haven't thought about the hot water that came out of the tap in the shower, you haven't thought about the pantry full of food uh, as all being gifts from heaven above. Take time to thank God for all those things. Sincerely, thank him. And those are just some material things. Right? Those are quite meaningless uh, in comparison to spiritual things. Uh, I'll ask this question I credit to John Piper, who I heard it from first. Uh, he said, Who keeps you from waking up in the morning and saying, You know what? I don't believe in that God stuff anymore. That's a hoax. Satan would love that if you woke up one day and said that. Have you noticed that for the past number of years, however long you've been a Christian, you've woken up every day and you haven't said that? Isn't that amazing? You think that was you that did that? No. <laughs> no, that was God. Uh, in 1 Peter 1, uh, it says, We are kept by God's power, guarded through the gift of faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And later in John, uh, we'll get to this in, in some time, Jesus tells us that he has sheep, and those sheep will not be snatched out of the Father's hand. God keeps us, God renews us, he forgives us, and he accomplished and applied all the aspects necessary to our salvation. And we should continually be in thanksgiving to him for that. And those are just a few things uh, that I mentioned that God's doing for us constantly, every day, every hour. He does this for all his children. He provides us with infinite spiritual and material gifts, and he has asked us to be thankful. And indeed, this is actually why we can be thankful in all circumstances. God has gone so far to say that every event in history is something that is working together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, for his people, his children. Every event. That means that God hasn't wasted anything, whether it be good or evil. Every event God uses for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. And so, my brothers and sisters, take time. Put an alarm on your phone if you have to. Uh, but don't forget to thank God for his many gifts, his many blessings that he has given to you. And when God does afflict you with pain or suffering or sickness, uh, you often only then realize how much you are blessed and how much you don't deserve the blessings that he has given to you already. And so in the times when you are not afflicted, give thanks in great measure to your great God and Heavenly Father, for you cannot even receive one thing unless it is given from heaven above. Now, after John says that a great uh, theological statement, uh, he basically explains why he's not upset and why he's not competing with Jesus and his disciples, because they're on the same side. He realizes that. Verse 28, he says, Remember, I told you I'm not the Christ. I'm the messenger sent before the Christ. 
The one who has the bride, that's the bridegroom. And the friend of the bridegroom, that's John the Baptist, he rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And therefore he says, this joy of mine is complete. So John basically says, I'm the friend, I'm the opening act. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the bridegroom. He's the one we are waiting for. And my joy is made full knowing that he's here and he is working. He must increase and I must decrease. Now there's another one-liner. <laughs> that sounds beautiful, right? He must increase, but I must decrease. That's worthy of putting on the wall to display it to the home, in the home, right? What I found, though, as I was thinking about this, is that the more I think about it, the less I actually like what that means. The less my, fl my flesh likes what that truly means. And we see that in John's disciple. He sure didn't like it. I think I'm more like that guy. He says, hey, that Jesus fellow, he's gaining a large crowd. He's even taking some of our followers. You better do something or we're going to lose everyone. Now that guy has the human nature that we can all relate to, right? You see, it's most often true that if Christ would increase, then we will decrease. Right? If Christ would gain the glory, then we must relinquish that glory from ourselves. If Christ would increase in recognition and credit, then we must decrease in recognition and credit. And when that really comes down to it, that is not an easy thing to desire. It's not natural to want to, de to decrease and to have Christ increase. And for pastors in particular, it's a constant struggle to decrease and have Christ increase, right? Great sermon, pastor. You nailed it. Thank you. Thank you. Good job. You really know how to preach the Bible. Oh, thank you. And before long, the pastor's thinking that he did what the Spirit of God actually did. Now, this doesn't necessarily happen when people compliment the pastor, so don't take that to heart. It's not bad to compliment the pastor. But it's always a temptation for anyone to take credit for that which God rightfully did. Now, most of us are not pastors. So let's ask the question, where could we be tempted to increase our own glory rather than to give glory to Christ? Think about the thing in your life that you most excel at. What are your skills? Where are you at your best? I'll give a short list here. Sports, running, weightlifting, or math, problem solving, writing, drawing, or painting, building, fixing, sewing, or knitting, teaching, running a business, singing, playing an instrument, driving, flying, creating something. That's the end of my list. Fill in the blank, whatever you're good at. When people compliment you on your skill, who gets the glory? And kids, this means you too. Yes, thank you. <laughs> this means you too. Do you take the glory for yourself? When you think about yourself at your best, who do you give credit to for that excellence? Did you know that your skill is 100% from God? Remember John saying from before, he said, you cannot receive even one thing except from heaven. 
So if your skill is something that you were born with, something you're naturally good at, it's because God gave it to you. And if your skill is something you worked for over many years with hard work and determination, then it's all because of you and God had nothing to do with it. Right? Hope you, I hope you caught the sarcasm there. Here's the truth. Even if you put in the work, ask the question, who supplied you with strength and energy every day? Who supplied you with the determination and desire to pursue this skill? Who gave your body the ability to think and to perform those physical actions? Well, we know that God sustains us and gives us strength in all we do, and thus in all things, he must increase. We must decrease. When we are good at something, we should glorify God for that gift. Now, I think we need to develop thought patterns that automatically seek to reflect the, the glory back to God. And when we do that, it'll become more natural to give thanks to God for what he has given to us. For example, when people compliment you or tell, your, tell you that you're really good at this or that, try responding in a way that acknowledges God's role in your life rather than just taking all the credit for yourself. This is just one small way that you can change the way that you think about glory or praise in your life. Now, it's your job to think about this and come up with other ways. I'll give you this one way. Uh, now, let me caution you before I get into my example. Don't get programmed just to just say, oh, I'll never say thank you to anyone. Uh, or I'll just try and pretend that I did nothing and say, I didn't do this. God did everything. Right? We all know life does not work that way. Right? God doesn't zap us into being good at something, but it usually happens through many years of practice and perseverance. And so what I'm aiming at is to develop a mindset that simply gives glory to God for where it, his glory is due. And now I'll, come, I'll give you your, uh, the first example. So someone comes up to you, uh, someone's, someone comes up to you and says, hey, you're really good at guitar. Now instead of saying, thanks, I know, you could say, thanks, God really gave me success and perseverance in my practice over the years. Now I just gave God the credit for my success in my practice. Now, you probably also opened the, a way for a good conversation to start. Uh, or that person might be weirded out by that peculiar answer and give you a funny look. And then you can still go and tell them why you answered that way. <laughs> uh, the second example, someone comes up to you and says, Hey, I've noticed your kids behave so well and respectful. How do you do it? Now, instead of saying, I guess I'm just the world's best parent, you could say, we tried to follow God's directions from his word as best we could, and he blessed us greatly. So that first answer seeks to only praise the self. Uh, please and praise uh, yourself. And the second answer seeks to point out that even though the parents diligently taught their children, right, they're still doing a lot of things, God is the one who gave the gift of how to teach them. And again, don't get rigid on this. Uh, think about beforehand about how you could answer people when they compliment you on your strengths. Uh, it's a simple way to respond uh, that gives gl God glory uh, where, where he is due. And as you do this in general, as you develop 
a mindset that desires God's glory to be magnified rather than your own, the result is that your joy will actually increase because you'll be thanking God for what he has done in your life and you can't be thankful and grumpy at the same time. Now, on the other hand, if you try to take the glory for yourself, you'll actually end up being more miserable because you'll always be worried when someone else is really good at something. Remember John's disciple? John, John, that other guy is getting our followers. Aren't you going to do something about it? I'm sure John's response was quite disappointing to that disciple. Uh, He basically says, I'm glad he's gaining a following. He must increase, I must decrease. For the man who's seeking to praise the self, that's a really bad answer. All right, we've covered those first few verses, and there's some great stuff coming here yet. So wake up, give your head a little shake, and we'll keep going. Verse 31 and following. Now, it isn't clear whether John the Baptist is still talking uh, or whether this is now John the Apostle, the author of the book, uh, giving us his concluding thoughts on the matter. Either way, uh, basically, it's Jesus is being compared with John the Baptist. So it says, He who comes from above, that's Jesus, is above all. He who is of the earth, John the Baptist, belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven, Jesus, is above all. And Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard. And yet no one, now that's the Israelites. Remember John 1, it says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. So that's the Israelites. No one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. So no one receives his testimony, but whoever does receive him, knows that God is true. For, verse 34, he whom God has sent, that's Jesus, utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now this here's a prophecy about the coming Holy Spirit, uh, who would not come when Jesus was there, uh, but Jesus says later in John, I am leaving, but I will send you another helper, the Spirit of truth. Verse 35, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, I hope that paragraph mostly made sense. The main point is Jesus is the one from heaven. John the Baptist is a messenger, right? Jesus is above all. He's the key. If you receive him, then you understand that God is true and you will have eternal life. However, if you are like the Israelites who do not receive him, you shall not see life, and the wrath of God remains on you. Now I want to focus in on verse 35. Did you notice what it said? Verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now, that's a very strong theological and historical statement. And I didn't really notice it until I read the passage through a few times. And so here again, the benefits of studying the scriptures are very worth the time and effort that it takes. Now, if all you do is read the scriptures, following a plan through the Bible in a year, you'll only get a part of the Bible. 
you get the, the bird's eye view. Now, I love reading the Bible through every year, and I think every Christian should be doing uh, daily Bible reading. <clears throat> so if you're not doing that, uh, there's really no greater need in your spiritual life than to start reading the Bible. And this definitely includes children and teens. You need to read your Bible if you want to grow in faith and knowledge of God. But Bible reading and Bible studying are two different ways to approach God's Word. And in the study, when you slow down, you'll find many things that you missed when you were reading. So read your Bible and then take time to study it uh, in a different part of the day. Anyway, back to verse 35. It says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Remember, this was written in the first century, right, 2,000 years ago. And therefore, all things have been in the hand of Jesus since the first century. Do you believe that? All things, that's all authority, all nations, all dark principalities and powers, all people. I believe there's great comfort in knowing that and believing that. Through the many evils in our past, in history, and in the upcoming evils of our future, all things are in the hand of Jesus. Remember, uh, the Bible says not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from God. Jesus' authority means that Christians win. We are on the winning side, right? Not, not the communists or the Marxists or the World Economic Forum. They're not the winners. They're not the kings, right? The people of Christ are the citizens of the king. They're trying to hard to take control, but all, all control is in the hand of Christ our Savior, Christ our King. They are the rebels. We are the co-heirs of the King. Now that gives me hope and joy for the future of my children uh, and Lord willing, my grandchildren. And they also, by God's grace, will be citizens of the conquering King Jesus. And so I don't fear for their souls. I'm not scared for my, for my children. Because God has promised to give grace in all scenarios, just as he has done throughout history and in my life. And John 3.35 shows us that we need not fear anything of the world. It is in the hands of Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, don't despair for your children. Rather, bring them up to be strong Christians, and they will be given joy in their trials that God has ordained for them. They may have to be much stronger uh, than you ever did. So prepare them. Prepare them in your home to be rock solid against the enemy. And then trust that Christ, who holds all things in his hands, will give them everything that they need to live a life pleasing to him. Now that gives me great hope and comfort. What a blessing to know that we don't have to fear the evil men of the world. Right? John says later in his gospel, take heart, he has overcome the world. Let's finish off with the final verse here, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, did you notice the interesting choice of words? 
It says, whoever believes, and then we'd expect it to say, and whoever does not believe. That's not what it says. It says, whoever believes and whoever does not obey. So you have two options. You're in the category of someone who believes or you are someone in the category who does not obey. And the person who does not obey, we can now assume, also does not believe. And on the other side, the person who does obey also believes. Was that easy to follow? <laughs> I'll say it one more time. There's only two groups of people when it comes to eternal life in Christ. And those who believe are in the positive category, and those who do not obey are in the negative category. And so we can assume the opposite of those statements as well. Those who do not believe will also be in the negative category. And those who do obey will be in the positive category. Now, why is that significant? Well, it connects the need for faith and works in salvation. Now, let's not get confused here. We're justified by faith alone and not by works. But we also know that faith without works is dead. And so those who do not obey clearly do not have true faith. They may have a dead faith, but they don't have a saving faith. Now, in our passage, it says, whoever believes in the Son. Now, what do you think of when you think of the word belief? What does it mean? Is belief different than having faith? Is belief different than trusting? Is it less than faith, or is it more, or is it the same? Now, when we speak of belief, I think, uh, at least the way that I think, many of us uh, are thinking of a mental assent or a mental agreement, right? I believe something is objectively true. But when we speak of trust or faith, there's more to it than that, right? There's a willingness to test that belief. So, for example, uh, I believe that the climbing rope will hold me, uh, but I don't trust it to step over the 100-foot cliff and rappel down that cliff. But if a person had true faith in that rope, they would be able to do it because they would believe that it would hold them and they would trust it to do so. And so they demonstrate that by going down the cliff. I think that's mostly how uh, we use those words. But that distinction that I just described here uh, doesn't actually exist in Scripture. There's only one word in Greek to describe faith, belief, trust. It is pistos or pistuo in verb form. So when the Bible says believe, it could just as easy say uh, trust or have faith. And so it means more than just that, that first uh, description of belief. It means more than just mental assent. It means belief that is trusting. It is faith that is willingness to test the truthfulness of it. Uh, Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says that Greek word pistos uh, includes believing, obeying, trusting, hoping, and being faithful, but is primarily faith in Christ. Now, the only time that word, pistos, is used in a way that does not indicate saving faith is in James. James chapter 2, uh, he says, Even the demons believe and shudder. 
but it's the same word. Now, in the direct context, uh, again, context is very important, James is talking about the believer uh, that has faith, but he does no good works. And he says that's a dead faith. And that's the kind of faith that the demons have, right? They even believe, but they shudder uh, uh, when in God. Sorry, it says even the demons believe and shudder. <clears throat> so the demons believe that God is real, right? They know there is a God. He is real. They know who he is. They believe and know who Jesus is, right? We see that over and over again in the Gospels. But they will not enjoy eternal life with him. Why? Because in essence, they don't obey his commands. <laughs> Remember the first and greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God. Do the demons love God? No, they hate God. Now enough said about the demons. What does this teach us? Well, we must have true belief in Christ. And this means more than just believing that Christ existed. It means more than a mental agreement that he died and rose again. It means more than knowing what the gospel is and knowing how to be right with God. All those are necessary parts, but we must also test that rope. That is, we must put our trust in Christ alone, that he is the only one who can save us. Now, in our analogy of the, the climbing rope, Christ is the rope. And we are called to believe, to trust that he can and will save us from our sins. And that other rope of trusting in ourselves, uh, even though it sometimes looks safer, nope, it'll fail. It will fail every time. We must trust Christ alone. And the text says that those who do not obey him will not see life and the wrath of God remains on him. So friends, those of you who do not yet trust in Christ, according to this text, you are at this very moment under the wrath of God because you have rebelled against him. And his wrath will remain on all who continue to reject him and his ways. God has commanded all people everywhere to repent of their sins and to put their hope and trust in Christ for their salvation. So do not delay. Obey him. Trust him. Repent of your sins and be forgiven. Become a child of God. And with Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we now go out into the world living for him and in his name. And we seek to live according to his desires for us. We seek to live in obedience to him. And I'll close with a few words uh, of application as we begin this new year. Have you ever read through the whole Bible? Now, teens, this means you too. No? Start today. Go home, have lunch, and then put away your phone, turn off the TV, and go read God's Word. And then do it again tomorrow. And so on. And if you have a gathering, do it on the way, or do it when you get home, but don't neglect God's word. You will never have time. You need to take the time. Beginning to read your Bible is the most significant thing that you can do for yourself spiritually if you've never read through it. And if you have read the, through the Bible before, perhaps many times, Big surprise, I'll give you the same counsel. 
read it again, and be assured that you will learn and be blessed by it. Now, if you want to have greater success in this uh, endeavor, tell your closest friend uh, or family member that you're going to do it so that they can encourage you and hold you accountable to it. Use a plan that you can stick to. They're easy to find. Uh, or if you can't find them, ask someone. Ask me if you need help. Second, how is your prayer life? Think back on that one this year. For me, this is one that I want to work on, so I'll preach here first. Set aside time in the morning and in the evening to pray. Start small, be consistent, and then go from there. Use the Psalms, use the other prayers from Scripture to help guide your prayer time. And when you've developed the habit, then pray for as long as you need to until you're actually praying. Did that make sense? Pray until your mind is truly focused on praying. And that usually doesn't happen right away. At least it doesn't for me. Third, are you doing family worship? No? Start today. Yes? Great. Keep doing it. There's no greater thing that you can do for your family than to worship God together. And men, this one's for you. Take the wheel. Lead your family. Last one. Make it a goal to attack the sin that most troubles you right now. And ideally, do it by using uh, the means of the other things that you're doing. Bible reading and praying. Seek deliverance from the Lord using the means of his word and communion with him. God has promised to help us in our battles against sin. And let us use the means that he has given us to do so. And as you do this, may the Lord bless you, my brothers and sisters. May he make his face shine upon you in grace and kindness. May he cause you to walk in his commands in faith and joy. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you for this past year, and we thank you for this coming year, and we pray that you would cause us to walk in your ways in joy. Lord, only you can do so, as we have acknowledged a few times this morning. We rely on you for everything. And we thank you again for all the things that you have done for us in Christ, all the things you do for us daily. Lord, grant us joy as we seek to follow you. Grant us perseverance in our afflictions, in our trials. And grant that we would not take for granted all the things that you have given us. May we continue to be thankful. May we continue to honor you where your honor is due in the things that you have given us, in the ways that you have uh, given us skill, given us gifts. May we not take that credit as if it is our own, but to give it to you. And Lord, may you be honored and glorified in all that is done today, in our lives, in our attitudes, in our actions, and as we go from here, cause us to bear fruit. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.